Okay, folks, we're back again for another edition of the Bibliotheques podcast. Your favorite type of podcast is what we have on the agenda today. We have our in-house Lewis scholar, my mom, in the building. Mom, how the heck are you? I'm great. So glad to be here. The last couple books I think that you've read for or along with us in preparation for this, you've done um, on airplanes, right? No, not Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian, I read at home. Well, that's what I mean. This one, this one's different though, because you, yeah. Okay. Well, how how was your read in general? Your, your reread of it? Well, I love this story. It was just great to get back to it. I enjoyed it. You know, at the end of this, I think we're going to have you do your rankings for your for your favorites um in this story but um for right now i'm i'm just kind of curious um just to kind of kick us off to like you know what is the like the one thing that you really love about this story and and maybe one thing that you don't love the thing i love is i think the best quote in all of the chronicles of narnia uh it's something that i carry around with me in my heart and it's when uh Lucy woke from the deepest sleep you can imagine with the feeling that the voice she liked best in the world was calling her name. Yeah, Cody, do you remember uh, you actually called that out when we were talking Prince Caspian? Um, I don't know if it was a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was we were talking about this, uh, where it, it was like she described it as the voice, like a combination of the voice of her father I think Peter was even mentioned in that quote too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What Mm -hmm. Lewis says is it wasn't her father and it wasn't Peter. Yeah. But it was the one that she loved, loved the most. And obviously we know who that is though. Lucy apparently did not at that point in time, despite being back in Narnia. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's what I like the best is that awesome quote. And then uh, it's part of my, really my spirituality, being able to recognize God's voice. So love that. And um, I don't know, the least favorite part, I think, is the, uh, when they're kind of trying to show off for the dear little friend so that they, you know, can prove that they're actually who they say they are. I find that a little tedious. You don't like that? Oh, I kind of like it, but I don't know. It's to say it. What's my favorite? I guess that my least favorite. That's probably my least favorite part of the book. What about you? Or well, do you want to talk about something else? Well, I was just I, Cody looked like he was going to jump in there, so I was, just, I was just waiting for him. Well, I wanted to say that I totally agree with you, uh, Keely, about how cool that quote is. Like Paul says, I brought it up, and it like if you want to get a little um, theological with it, it's it's not only recognizing God's voice, but finding God's voice in all the things you love, right? Like that's why she's, it's, she's not, she's mistaken of it at first, but because it sounds like all the other things that she cares about. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I think my, uh, I, I would have to agree with her, Paul, because you know, that whole first part of the Pevensey kids on the Island is just pretty much, you know, a little bit, a little bit of Scooby-Doo, a little bit of where are we? even though it's pretty clear where we are from the, from the jump. No, I, I agree with that. I think that whole, I, the word tedious, I think is very apt, you know, it's an apt description for that portion of the book, which is odd to me considering the fact that Lewis spe- wastes no time getting us into Narnia mm-hmm. and then takes what feels like 
too long for the kids to realize where they are. You know, like the book starts with them being whisked away via magic off of this train platform within like the first two paragraphs. It's great. But then to spend another chapter or two just kind of like figuring out this island felt unnecessary. But from there, the book just it just cooks. Right, right. From there. Yeah. And so, mom, one of the things that we talked about, I wonder how you feel about this. The pace of this book feels a lot different than certainly Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. I would say probably uh, Magician's Nephew as well. I felt personally that the horse and his boy was like breakneck speed almost the entire time. But Prince Caspian especially, you know, after the island stuff, we're just going, going, going. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel? Like, does that mean anything to you? Like, how do you feel about the pace of this book in comparison to the other ones? Well, I agree. I think it has a great pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think the whole point of the section after they figure out where they are is to figure out what they're supposed to do. And, you know, I think Lewis does a great job with, you know, people who supposedly are believers and yet they put their own plans in front of God's. And, you know, it, again, the reason that your youngest sibling is named Lucy is because it's Lucy, the most childlike, the most faith filled, who is able to ultimately see that Aslan is trying to lead them if they would pay attention. And then she's presented with a dilemma, which is she is the youngest. She has still the least authority, which is kind of ironic when you consider the fact that she was the one who found Narnia in the first place. And you Mm -hmm. kind of love the fact that Edmund learned from his mistakes, right? And is going to take his sister's side. So it's just great. I just love that I mean, I love the way in this book that Lucy can see Aslan first and that she's given a challenge, you know, and this is so much I, like the early church where people have to stand up and say, yeah, uh, I believe in Jesus. Do your worst, you know, and she mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, she's hoping Aslan's going to save her. She's hoping that Aslan himself is going to convince everyone else. And yet he says, no, that's going to be your job. And you know, Lucy's a little upset about it at first, but in true Lucy fashion, ultimately says to this dwarf, who doesn't believe her at all, and Susan, who's being very worldly, and Peter, who is... That's a generous description of Susan. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to wait for you to be done, but I agree with Paul. That is about as generous an interpretation of Susan's behavior as there can be, I think. Well, it's funny. Uh, um. I think I use that term in a more uh, derogatory way than (laughs) both of you consider it. Um, (laughs) You know, Susan is letting the cares of this world make her choose to forget who Aslan is, you Mm -hmm. know? So uh, that's a pretty serious indictment from a Christian perspective. So, yeah, I just love the fact that at one point Lucy says, I'm going to go the other way. If you guys don't go with me, I'm still going, you know? So it's great. 
Cody, so Cody and I discussed this at the end of our last episode um, on the book. We did one on the movie, which, you know, we've talked about a little bit. It's just that movie is it's hilarious and super fun. But in terms of like movie to book, whatever, we don't need to get into that today. But when we were done, when we wrapped the book, one of the things that I said that I felt like I was missing a little bit in this book that you get a lot of in the three that we had done leading up to this is a lot of character building. And because Lewis is using the same three characters from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we know who they are to a great extent. Now, the section of the book that you're talking about, I think is the part of the book where we get the most kind of character insight. Yeah. But even with that, and this isn't me, you know, shitting on Prince Caspian. I love this book, but it felt like, all right, Lucy's going to do what we know Lucy's going to do. Edmund is going to do what Edmund is going to do based on the lessons he learned in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. And then Peter and Susan act pretty much the way that you would expect. Susan may be a little bit worse, but my problem with it is that even though Susan's screwing up, Peter's screwing up a little bit to some extent, the redemption that we don't get in Caspian that we do in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a big deal to me, I felt. Well, I think what's going on is in terms of character development, Mm -hmm. Lewis is planting seeds for how things are ultimately going to go for Peter and Susan. And, you know, this idea of the kingdom of God is for the childlike, you know, we're told at the end that Peter and Susan are too old Mm -hmm. to return to Narnia. Um, Although Peter is led to understand that he's going to be able to see Aslan in our world, you know, it's pretty tight, but what there is kind of a differentiation between the path that Peter's on and the path that Susan is on. And I think even in their reaction, you start to, and you're talking about character development that Peter kind of like, for example, King David in the old Testament, you know, he messes up. And the thing that redeems David is he immediately tells God he's sorry. Right. And Peter is one of his greatest care. Uh, one of his, greatest virtues is the second Peter messes up and he realizes he will apologize. You know, there's no pride, there's no sniveling and there's just little hints that Susan isn't exactly going that way. Right. I mean, the, the one thing that I really liked about, about Susan in the book is her apology to Lucy Mm -hmm. where she's clearly very kind of like, she's just kind of flustered in the moment seems like, and she admits to Lucy, which I feel like more people should do in their apologies is I was making like my decisions and Aslan calls her out for this, but Susan's making a lot of choices based on fear Mm -hmm. and in your words, like worldliness. Right. But that I think is a really strong moment for her. And at least recognizing that she did screw up and wanting to make it right with Lucy at least. But I just felt that the the moment in, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Edmund is basically put in timeout by Aslan mm-hmm. was just a little bit more impactful, at least for me. I think I think that's right. 
Um, I also think that, you know, we're, we're, we also run into the issue of scale that, like you said, Paul, there isn't a, there, there isn't as much character development in this book. The Pevensey kids are more or less pretty concrete in, in who they are. And that leads to decisions that, you know, need forgiveness or not. But, you know, I think Susan not believing Lucy that she saw Aslan on the ridge line is a much lesser slight than Edmund selling out his family for candy. And I think that, I think that, and they, I think that sees itself later in the chapters when, you know, the necessary amount of forgiveness for those two actions isn't the same. So I, I just want to toss in since we're talking about lying, the witch in the wardrobe, I meant to share this with you guys last time I reread mere Christianity before we were going to do the Chronicles because Lewis lays out his theology and mere Christianity in such a great way. And then it's all through the Chronicles of Narnia. And this, this line in um, mere Christianity, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether, or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Mm -hmm. And you know, that right at, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when uh, Lewis just tells us Edmund wasn't thinking about himself. He was just looking at Aslan, yeah. you know, that, that mm -hmm. kind of real humility where you're really just focused on God. Very cool. Yeah, totally. So one thing that's interesting about this book is we've been, you know, talking for about 15 minutes now and we haven't even mentioned Prince Caspian and this book definitely, I mean, it's called Prince Caspian. We talked about this because he is the person that this story like kind of revolves around, but it isn't necessarily like about him. That's you know, true. if Prince Caspian, like if you were to tell me, here's my argument for why Prince Caspian isn't in fact the main character in this book, I would listen to you, mm -hmm. you know? And so this book to me is really about still the four Pevensey kids. And, you know, I want you mentioned before we started recording that what Lewis is doing in this book is he's using this book as a metaphor in a sense for the early church. When I was reading this, I didn't pick up on any of that. And so I'm fascinated and I'd love to hear more about that really quick though. Caspian's storyline in this and Cody and I talked about it is so fascinating and so action packed. And the, like the whole idea of there's this usurping uncle and Caspian's running for his life and he's meeting all of these old Narnians and everything. It's so captivating. And it's interesting to me that Lewis didn't lean into more of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it seems like he could have like the movie did devised some way to like make Caspian more central to, you know, the story Um, in a weird I don't know what if I'm saying that right. But well, I think I think you're right, Paul. I think he's more or less just the catalyst needed to get the Pevensey kids back into Narnia. And because of that, the story revolves around him. Because like you said, Keely, once they're in Narnia, they have to realize, okay, why are we here? What do we need to do? What is, you know, Aslan's purpose for us being here? And because of the magic in the horn, that's why they're there. 
Yeah. So that's kind of where our story gets going. Absolutely. Can, you know, can I, go ahead. I had not thought about it as the start, as the, um, uh, as an analogy for the early church, but can I take a stab at it? Yeah. Are the, are the Telmarines, the Romans an occupying force and the Narnians hiding and <laughs> being, being executed when found just a metaphor for early Christians or well, you know, <laughs> that's the first thing I said too. <laughs> that's what Paul said. And first of all, this is my opinion. Okay. Never, I like it though. I've never read this anywhere or anything like that. And so, and I didn't take that metaphor as far out as you two just did. Although I think it works perfectly. My thing is more Aslan is the uh, primary actor of uh, the person bringing the redemption, the salvation in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And in this story, he's saying to the Pevensies, you need to do it. You know, uh, I'm going to guide you. I'm not even going to be readily visible to everyone all the time, but you've got to trust me and you've got to, um, it's up to you guys now. And, and I think for the early church, you know, uh, Christians, the first Christians had a historical Jesus, right? They had a Jesus walking the face of the earth, a first century Palestinian Jew, okay, who they could touch. And after the resurrection accounts uh, and he ascends to heaven, then he's everywhere, which is cool. Uh, he's not just in one place. But on the other hand, he's not somebody you can sit down and eat a meal with. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what I was that that's what I've always thought about this. Right. So in right. the story, that's why, you know, you might be pulling your hair out when you're just asking yourself, like, Aslan, just fix this. Right. You know, and I think just in terms of, you know, Christianity, I think in religion in general, probably a lot of people take that a little bit too far a lot of times where it's just like, hey, why doesn't God just fix these problems for us? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a real question and I think valid in, in some ways, especially if you don't know um, a lot of just kind of like the theology and philosophy surrounding these religions. But the point being, Lewis is doing his best to show Aslan being that force mm-hmm. in the world, but not the peace bringer by himself. Right. And mm-hmm. Lucy is the essentially the witness, the martyr, you know, martyr means witness. So Mm. she's the one who first sees him stands up to, you know, it's a very small amount of persecution. It's not the Coliseum, but she's, (laughs) (laughs) she's standing up, you know, and I think Teresa of Avila is great quote, you know, Christ has no hands in the world uh, now, but yours, no feet, but yours, no eyes to look on the world, but yours. So, yeah. Right. And, yeah, I, I totally agree with you guys that, you know, the view of of like, why isn't Aslan solving my problems and the parallel of that with, you know, I prayed for something. Why hasn't it materialized? Is that, you know, there's it's really like like Jesus doesn't wasn't about transactions and his love was never transactional and stuff. It was never you do X, I do Y. It was all it was always something more than that. I think Aslan's trying to teach that to the kids as well. Yes. So I want to get back to Prince Caspian because, you know, like Paul said, the Pevensey kids don't really grow at all. But how did you like um, the, you know, we do get a decent amount of Prince Caspian in this book. How did you like his arc from unassuming era apparent to rebellion leader and noble 
uh, believer in Aslan. Well, I just think I'm really glad you just just brought him back up because it is a great story. I love that moment when Dr. Cornelius, you know, is saying, I mean, isn't it so exciting when doc, when the fireworks are going up and, and, and scary too. And, and, and you realize how naive Caspian is that. <laughs> oh yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. We you know, oh yeah. <laughs> now, you know, uh, your stepmom's had a kid and your life is basically forfeit. And, you know, so you really appreciate the, the wisdom of, of Dr. Cornelius and the naivete of Caspian, but then also how much um, trust he has in his counselor and, and his, and also just this, just real straightforward joy that he feels when he gets out into old Narnia and starts meeting these people. It is, it's just a great story and it's fun to watch him uh, grow up. And, And yet he doesn't really ever seem you know, like Mr. Macho leader at all, or Mm -hmm. even all that sure of himself. But of course, that's one of the attributes that the attribute of humility is really valued in these stories. So it's kind of nice that he never really develops a swagger. Yeah. And I mean, that comes full circle at the end of the book when Aslan basically asks him straight up, hey, are you ready to be king? And he's like, no. I'm just a kid. I'm just a a kid, (laughs) Mr. Lion God, and like, yeah, well, that's exactly what I'm looking for. So, yeah. saddle up, here we go. Yeah, it's like that. It's like the old Dumbledore quote: "Perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who never sought it. Those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must, and find to their own surprise they wear it well." There you go. Yeah, and Caspian well certainly said. does wear it well, and I, you know. It's interesting because C.S. Lewis like kind of shits on traditional education throughout this entire mm-hmm. book, like wherever is possible. I think it's hilarious. I bring it up every time I can. Um, I mean, it starts with C.S. Lewis being like, how terrible would it be to go back to boarding school and quickly whisks the Pevensey kids away before they need to do that? And then, you especially, know, especially to his poor Lucy, who's having to go for the first, first time, time. And what an awful shock that's going to be. Yes. Yeah. But then, I mean, at the end of the book, there's obviously the, you know, Aslan going through and just scaring all the school kids away or turning them into pigs or whatever. But one thing that C.S. Lewis doesn't mind at all, it seems, is just this one on one tutelage between Cornelius and Caspian. Mm-hmm. And it was this like mentorship was done in a way I feel that like it made sense in the book and was really lovely to read that Caspian, when he eventually met the old Narnians was struck with a almost like a reverence towards them. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that was, it wasn't fear necessarily. It was probably surprise being like oh my god you guys actually exist this is nuts but the capability to lead these people without any kind of prejudice i think is really important and it just speaks to what basically a good education can do for Mm -hmm. somebody yeah um and i just love that (laughs) i just love that it wasn't like Caspian had to go to boarding school like no he had a great teacher that could just teach him everything he needed by himself yeah including astronomy from the tower right yes 
Let's see. What else uh, about Prince Caspian? Well, I think, you know, it's funny. I uh, ran across a, a collection of Irish folk tales. Mm. And uh, in one of them, and, and it's interesting, There, this shows up in other things, but this idea of a changeling where a baby is switched, mm. a healthy baby for a not healthy baby. And in the Irish folk tale, the person doing this is a hag. Oh. And, mm. uh, you know, you just, it, it just hits you over and over that there's this big treasure box and all these people that we love, Lewis and Rowling and Tolkien, they're all just pulling out of it. You know, they're pulling these out of this, all these great stories. And, but it was interesting because in the story that I read, the Irish folk, folk tale, she's kind of doing the same thing she's doing in this story where she's kind of over in the corner, you know, mm. and, uh, and kind of emerges and, and uh, it's just, just it's just creepy, right? That's mm-hmm. a really creepy scene. And then remember, I, I think it's fascinating how he says, uh, Cornelius says the wit or who is it who says the witch is dead? What are you talking about bringing back the witch? Do you guys remember who it is? It I would should be either. Was it, it Badger? It, it would. Yeah. It would either be Truffle Hunter or Cornelius. I think in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the only to not well, there's Caspian truffle hunter and Cornelius. Right. Those were the right. And, and, you know, she says, Oh, the master, you know, she's doing all this false, um, praise of him oh, trying yeah. to butter him up. Mm-hmm. And she says, Oh, the worshipful master should know that no witch is ever really dead. Yeah. And it kind of gives you the shivers, right? Oh yeah. I mean, not to mention the, just absurd speech from the werewolf at the top of that scene. Like, all right, who are these guys? And the hag's like, Hey, I'm a hag. And the werewolf's like, I am hunger. I am thirst. I can, it's like, okay, a name would suffice. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. But that's a, that's a good, uh, really creepy scene. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. But you know, that, that, um, that brings up kind of, you know, of the many lessons that Lewis is trying to get across in the hundred pages that he allotted himself for this book, he <laughs> also brings up at one point through Nickabrick early on when Caspian's meeting a bunch of the old Narnians for the first time, Nickabrick says, Hey, I've got some friends, you know, some ogres and hags and things that are probably interested in joining you. And Caspian says, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And I think it's a very important lesson that, you know, Lewis is basically saying, Hey, fighting for a good thing doesn't mean that you can use evil measures to do so. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, I, I really appreciated that. And that, I mean, that came down to, you know, one paragraph at that moment, but then also again, in this whole discussion about whether or not to use the white witch for her power in this fight. Mm-hmm. And it's another conversation about faith because like, okay, well, obviously like Aslan doesn't deal in transaction, but the devil does, you know, the white witch loves, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And so it's just like, it's the flip opposite of how those two do those things. It's like, well, I've been doing everything right. I'm, I'm, I 
I'm on the run. I'm with all these Narnians in the woods. I'm getting my butt kicked every battle with King Miraz. And what do I have to show for it? I'm like hunkered down in Aslan's house because it's raining. And, you know, the the devil wouldn't do what he does if it wasn't tempting and if it didn't work a lot of the time. So, right. He, he, he's the only reason he's entertaining the werewolf and the hag and Nickabrick so long is because he's thinking about it. Yeah. So I, I do want to just, so we don't forget. I, another thing I love about this story is the fact that it's Susan who gets rid of that first man in the boat. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Oh, we've discussed this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, and I love the way it's, it's described, you know, that you just hear that you hear the arrow, the twang and yeah. yeah. And, and Susan just nails this guy, right? Like mm. she, without making any big deal about it, really the dear little friend owes her his life. They were going to drown him. So also, yeah. Speaking of that before, before we go on, are, should we be saying dear little friend? Uh, well, I mean, that is how the Pevensey kids refer to Trumpkin. Trumpkin. Mm-hmm. You seem to think you look like, you know, it's kind of just an endearing thing. I, I when I read it, I was just kind of like, these kids are assholes. They're, yeah, they're rubbing salt in the wound. Yeah. No, it's true. <laughs> it's true. But I, I think this is a good way to segue how much nature plays a part in this story too. You know, like the trees have gone silent and dormant and recessed into themselves. Um, we talk at length about how a lot of this book is Fangorn Forest too. Exactly. Um, but also that Susan on site tries to murder a Telmarine boatsman, but is really slow on the draw for a charging bear because what if he's a nice guy mm-hmm. and just like, you know, the Lewis respect for nature and how treating the life of a wild bear with more caution than that of a person. It, it's pretty noticeable. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, her intuition that that Telmarine was a bad guy mm-hmm. is pretty interesting too. I mean, they hadn't been there very long and she knew who the bad guy was. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. that was the thing that I was wondering about, because the last time they were in Narnia, when they were fighting, the majority of the dwarves were not on their side. And here's these two men about to dunk this dwarf and she chooses to shoot the dude, which I was just like, all right, well, good for you, Susan, for knowing the right thing. Well, and I think when you if you kind of think of the context, it would be she would know that no rightful authority would get rid of a person this way. That's probably, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Oh yeah. This, this seemed off the books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no question. With the scene that Cody brought up with the bear mm-hmm. shortly after that is one of these other nuggets of this story that I absolutely loved, which is Lucy pulling Susan away as the boys are butchering this bear and asking Susan, wouldn't it be awful if in our world there were men who receded back into a bestial state, but we wouldn't know it? Mm-hmm. And then in you know typical Lewis fashion, he's like, all right, I don't have time to dwell on this, so here's more story, and I'll just leave you, the reader, thinking about this. 
how how does that hit you? And I mean, what what are you thinking? Just given the fact, like, what is Lewis saying? Given the time period he's writing these, you know, in the fifties. Yeah. Well, I think you're you're spot on. It's we've seen a lot of that happening uh, in terms of humans receding into less than humane treatment of each other. What do you think, Cody? I think I think it's pretty obvious what he's going at too. That you know. Men in the like in the in the kind of Lewis Tolkien hypergender like the 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 world of men human beings it's a pretty violent place and it is extremely unfortunate how much humans kill each other for seemingly petty reasons like power or money or ideas or control things like that and how you genuinely can't tell just by the look of someone their character. And the girls are a little too young to kind of fully grasp that, you know, they live a what I would assume is a pretty sheltered life, you know, London suburbs. And then they've been living in this mansion with a nice guy, the the nice professor in charge. They're about to go to boarding school, pretty sheltered themselves. So, you know, it's them kind of like kind of realizing and Lewis floating it in through their kind of naivete. Wouldn't it be bad if you couldn't tell if someone on the street was a bad person? Or I, was violent or be, or evil or some whatever word you want to associate with it. And unfortunately, that is the world we live in. Right. 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 That's what and that's what I think he's saying is is Lucy Lucy and her like naivete maybe is like, wouldn't this be terrible if this was the case? And Lewis is basically saying through this, this is the case mm-hmm. in the world like this. I mean, not to this to the extent that a man is going to act like a bear, obviously, but there is this slide in our world today where men are capable and women too, you know, we're, we're, we're all inclusive here, but men in particular, especially this time period are capable of, you know, waging wars and genocide and just absolute atrocities. And it's like, well, okay, you know, this is the world we live in. And Lucy is just there to almost like remind us of that. Yeah. One thing, to toss in, and I think you're both spot on here, but this might muddy the waters a little, is that really interesting quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the beaver said, I feel like it's Mr. Beaver who says, and I can't even remember the context, but it's always been a quote that stood out. If it's a man now, but it wasn't before, you know what I'm talking about? There's this interesting quote in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, if it was once man, but it's not now, or it's half man and it's going to be something else, he says, you know, keep an eye on it and make sure your hatchet's ready or something like that. And I don't know exactly what Lewis is doing with this. So anyway, um, like I said, that's always something I found fascinating, but I've never felt clear on what Lewis was getting at. Yeah. You know, he's, I think Lewis likes to play a lot. With the spectrum of like moral humanity and how human beings, there's a quote in Prince Caspian where after telling Caspian, hey, you came from uh, people who were once pirates and then conquerors and then people who were trying to eradicate old Narnia altogether. And Caspian is kind of saying, well, as a son of Adam, is that like something that I can really hang my hat on? Mm-hmm. And like, am I worthy really because of that context to be king? 
And Aslan's response to that is based, I mean, it's a beautiful quote. I'm going to butcher it, but it's essentially, you know, the like proudest king and lowest beggar are all included in this thing known as mankind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, be like, you're good. Mm -hmm. And so I just think like Lewis, a lot of the time is playing with this, with this idea that people aren't all good. They're not all bad. And they slide back and forth Mm -hmm. from extreme to extreme at times. And really Aslan is the only person in these stories that is, well, and Lucy, I think to, to a a great degree as well, who are really kind of like rock solid in in who they are and and what they choose to do. Yeah. And it's kind of speaking of that, I was, it's kind of cool at the end that Telmarine who's willing to go through the door Mm -hmm. and it, it's very, uh, if you've read the last battle, that scene where we haven't yet, don't spoil. I won't, but there's, there's a scene in the last battle where that there's kind of an echo kind of reminds me of that. Okay. So something to look forward to Lewis. I think Lewis likes to make the point that people can be following Aslan without knowing they're following Aslan, you know? people who are doing their best in whatever their system is mm-hmm. of their system or morality or uh, however they understand God or the transcendent. And I mean, we saw this in uh, the horse and his boy. I would say more so in the horse and his boy mm-hmm. than in Prince Caspian. But the, the interesting thing about horse and his boy, and you know, we didn't have you on to talk about mm-hmm. that books, but the the interesting there thing there is that Aslan is a more he's acting more as a guiding force in that in that book in sometimes like not so pleasant ways right more so than like a silent and sometimes invisible being that you're expected to follow mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like as the lion in a horse and his boy he is chasing these people to get them to go where they need to go. Right. And it's an interesting parallel to this where he's asking people to follow mm-hmm. rather than chase them where they need to be. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know. Like, I think that's because the horse and his boy is during the reign of the Pevensey still. Yeah. Okay. So we're not in a new church yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, mm-hmm. someone we haven't mentioned who is... One of the best characters of all, Reap a Cheap. Oh, I thought you were going to say Bulgy Bear. <laughs> no, I like Bulgy Bear too, but uh, we meet Reap a Cheap this time. Yes, we do. And I don't enjoy Reap a Cheap as much in this story. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, but I thought you were just going to straight up say like disavow Reap a Cheap. Don't, not a fan. <laughs> no. And, and the reason is because... We will meet Reepicheep again. Mm-hmm. Let's go. And he is wonderful. Uh, you can you can tell Lewis likes writing through Reepicheep's voice. Yes, yes. So even though he needs correction, kind of like the horse in, in the horse and his boy does, kind of for that same reason around pride and and all of that. But bordering on arrogance, almost. Right. right. Yes. Yes. And and false pride is a real issue for. For Lewis. So yeah, I will see more of Reepicheep and I think we'll see him 
in even a much more favorable light. Yeah, you know, Reaper Cheap is is another just great example because one of the things that Lewis has been doing throughout this entire like the all of the books that we've read, he loves using kids because kids are most times you would think incapable of doing anything that these kids are doing, and they do it. It is no surprise to me, not a shock at all, that C.S. Lewis is like, I need a valiant knight character, and. I have my centaurs. They're over there. They're great. I've got, you know, bears I can work with if I want. I've got, you know, all like the whole host of talking animals that I can pick for my valiant knight. And he goes with the mouse. And I think it's so it's just so Lewis to do that where it's like first shall the last shall be first, you know, like the meek will inherit the earth type of thing. And it, it's just awesome that Reaper Cheap is this, I don't know, he's totally capable. And and more importantly, the most, you know, the most important thing about Reaper Cheap in the end is not that he is this like valiant guy necessarily, but it's that his people love him. And that's why he gets his tail back. Yep. Right. So Lewis doing Lewis things teaching us lessons through unlikely heroes. It's fun too that like you were saying he is capable. They actually contribute in the battle. Mhm. And then, you know, so there's so many great themes between Lord of the Rings and and uh Chronicles of Narnia and Lewis. So obviously hobbits and the little mouse, right? Um but another one that I love is if you show up even when things look really bad, if you show up you're going to get help from unlikely places, right? And, you know, there's that that great scene in Lord of the Rings when the, you know, the elf warriors show up and they're not expected. That whole troop of elf warriors. In what, what, which part? I feel like it's... The, the Two Towers movie? It is in Two Towers movie. Yeah, I don't think that happens in the books, actually. Well, actually, you're right. It is in the movie, but in... um. In the books, it's when elves show up to help Aragorn and mm. he wasn't expecting them. And they bring the standard, right? That Arwen. Oh, has. right. And they bring the Dunedain. The oh, the, Duna, the Dunedain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The yep. Dunedain come. Well, in this story, what I think is so interesting is the unlooked for help is those two treacherous men who turn on Miraz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting, uh, spin zone for those two slime balls. Yeah. (laughs) And it, you know, again, I'm not, you're right. It's not, it's not like that's making them good people, Yeah. but you know, you just, if you show up, if you follow the instructions you've been given, if you're doing your best, there is going to be help unlooked for. And in this case, part of it was those two dudes who are willing to kill Miraz, mm-hmm. uh, they had their own plot hatched. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I do too. Those guys are great. Paul and I talked about when we talked about the movie, how we actually appreciated that they're in the movie a little bit more just because it just lays the foundation of just the kind of culture that King Miraz sets throughout his reign. The extremely cutthroat, you know, climb the mountain, don't care about who you step on way of the running things that he does in his kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that the movie is, the movie is better in my opinion 
I well, I don't know. I getting somebody the getting the reader to hate the villain is something that I don't think C.S. Lewis feels he needs to dwell on a lot. Okay. You know, and maybe that is because I've read Game of Thrones and other kind of like high fantasy where the evil people are more evil than you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. In these, you know, in these books, like the White Witch, Miraz, um, I think he does a great job with Jadis in Magician's Nephew for sure. Uh, but ev- like even in Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, well, no, I take that back. Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, she's pretty bad. Miraz in this book is kind of absent for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he has this kind of evil thing he does where he sends the nurse away. But besides that, the implication that he wants to kill Caspian and just kind of like the stories and background of what he's done in Narnia and is kind of like what you're going on. But right. there's Remember not a- that one line where uh, Cornelius says, he killed your father. Yeah, but then we move on from that really exactly. quickly. Do you know what I mean? No, I, I know exactly what you're saying. It's very much in the background. Yeah, so I, I just think if somebody, <laughs> I keep going back to this, but the fact that C.S. Lewis is writing these stories intentionally for kids, making them short, I almost am wondering, did has someone ever, as just kind of like, fan fiction decided, hey, I'm going to turn Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe or Prince Caspian into a thousand page novel because hmm. you could, I feel like. Yeah, he really almost like by design only scratches the surface. There's a lot more implied magic with Lewis than there is like actual text. And that's that's actually kind of why I liked a lot of the lore that gets introduced in this book, because, you know, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, he wrote that one first chronologically, right? Mm-hmm. Pure time of publishing he had that one first and we talked about how he definitely had an idea of how all this stuff works but he hadn't got to it yet and in this one you know there's a whole background of like the kingdom of telmar and that people coming over and then a succession of kings and there were some good kings and bad kings and now there's the king's brothers in charge and that kind of actual you know he put in the work that time to really kind of explain to you and and set the the groundwork for what the story was going to be when in line the witch in the wardrobe, a lot of it is like we're in Narnia. It's obviously magic. The magic goes deep and we're not even going to scratch the surface of it. Mm-hmm. We get the little bit of Aslan once he's resurrected being like the witch knows the deep magic from the dawn of time. But guess what, folks? There's deeper magic from before the dawn of time. And you're like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> but he never goes into it, right? It's not like there's not rules established. There isn't like where did it come from? There's constantly the reference of Aslan being the son of the emperor across the sea. But until now, even through the books we've read, we haven't heard of what the emperor does, where he's from, what what is across the sea. We don't know. So we may find out what's across the sea at some point. We will. <laughs> okay. Not a ton of time left. Let's see. Cody, anything else you wanted to, to discuss while we've got my mom here? What do you think of... So it's not like Lewis and also Token, they don't allow their characters to use nature as a weapon. But nature is always an ally of our heroes, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you think they want to make that distinction? Why can they never like tap into nature? Why does it always come at its own behest? Hmm. Well, I, th- I, 
I don't really think I need to answer that question, Cody. I think you, your question is really what it's all about. You know, humanity is supposed to be stewards and, and enjoy nature for nature's own sake. You know, that line in Tolkien when Legolas hops up on the horse and needs neither bridle nor saddle, you know, because such is the way of with elves and all good beasts, you know, there's a, Mm -hmm. there's a love and a mutual respect that evil humanity violates and people who are good understand that nature is nature is its own thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, that is, it is interesting. Just like the the agency that Lewis and Tolkien just allow trees in particular, and you know uh, the the moment in Caspian where the river god destroys the bridge, uh, or in Fellowship when the river washes the Nazgul away. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think that it is that's really that is interesting. Um, but it's not it isn't really something that, yeah, like Cody said, it's not really something that our characters call upon. And even beyond that, in this story, the river God asks permission mm-hmm. of Aslan to destroy this bridge. He's basically just like, Hey, unlock me from my chains. Mm-hmm. And Aslan's like, yeah, man, go for it. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting too, where, you know, Aslan's the type of character in this story that we don't get in Lord of the Rings. Like, the god character isn't mm-hmm. really in Middle Earth the way Aslan is here. So that's another interesting way of unlocking nature um, that I don't think Tolkien really plays with as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're told in uh, in Lord of the Rings that it was the elves, right, who mm-hmm. began to speak to the trees. Mm-hmm. And the elves are kind of these angelic beings. And then, like you're saying... In this story, it's Aslan himself. You know, Lucy tries to wake the trees up, but it has to be Aslan who does it. And then she comes close. She comes close because she, I think, because she's so connected to Aslan. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, w- one, one last thing that I wanted to ask you about or just wanted to talk about is the, the moment where Aslan, um, Aslan heals the nurse mm. in the house. Mm hmm. And there are just, it, it's a very captivating scene because one, Aslan busts down this whole house in doing so, breaks through the door. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to find this, this quote because it's interesting what this nurse says. And it's similar to other first encounters with Aslan. So bear with me here. Cody, I was hoping you, it looked like you were looking for that text from Mr. Beaver, that quote from Mr. Beaver. I couldn't find it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought you were looking for it. I could tell. I was looking for it. Yeah, you're kind of like our, you know, the sports sports radio and the guy getting the the statistics in the background. You know, I'll... Uh, I'll create uh, narniareference.com for us (laughs) so that it'll just be a wiki of quotes and stats and lists of characters. So the the quote that I was looking for is when Aslan comes into the house, she says, oh, Aslan, I knew it was true. I've been waiting for this all my life. Have you come to take me away? And, you know, that is 
that's uh, I, I guess slightly different, although it could be interpreted as similar to what Wynne says when she meets Aslan in The Horse and His Boy, mm-hmm. where she says, hey, eat me first. Yeah. In this case, the nurse seems to have a little bit more of an understanding of what Aslan is and what he could potentially be there to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she clearly is asking, hey, are you going to take me on that? Aslan responds, yes, dearest, but not the long journey yet. Yeah. And then, you know, very Jesus-y and Lazarus heals mm-hmm. her, right? So I don't know. That was, again, this book just feel, seems to me like it's filled with these little moments that are just kind of sprinkled in on the top of just scenes mm-hmm. that Lewis is like, hey, pay attention here or something like that. Well, and there's a lot of scenes in the gospel where healing happens like that, because if I remember correctly, she there's there's not a lot of ceremony around that. You no, know? no, almost and none. Like when one of Jesus's first healings, depending on which gospel you're reading, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Mm. And it says, and she got up and made them something to eat. <laughs> you know, it's just very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then, you know, she's healed and her important role is the hospitality. And that's what she's going to do. Um, I wanted to share with you guys one other quote from Mere Christianity. It's the very last line. Uh, and it's, it sums up this book, I think, so much. Lewis says, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So I, I think that's just perfect for this book. You know, that's what Lucy's doing. I agree. Yeah, right. That just sounds like what the Telmarine rule of Narnia has been without magic, right? It's just backstabbing and emptiness and sorrow and no joy. Yeah. And, you know, there's safety, but there's high taxes and misery all over, even by the powerful. So, yep. Yep. Self serving. Well, uh, with that, I think uh, we can wrap up here. Thank you so much for coming, Mom. You're so welcome. I guess just for agenda the next couple times, we're going to be reading Don Treader next. So we're going to keep chugging along. We've only got three more books in this uh, chronicle to read. So diving back into the voyage of the Don Treader next week. All I can say is whoop, whoop. (laughs) Love this book. I'm excited for it. I remember, I don't remember any details really, but I remember Mm -hmm. it fondly. So, so great. And not only are you welcome for me being here, but thank you because I love hanging out with you guys and talking about these books. So thanks for having me. Here. Oh, it's entirely well, thank our, you. our pleasure. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, that has been the Bibliotheques podcast. Once again, we will see you all next time. Bye, folks. Bye. Bye.